Today's scripture reading is from Malachi, um, the fourth book, verse 1 through to 6. The great day of the Lord. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the, Lord, the, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You, me, Malachi, I tell you, it has been one fantastic road trip together, hasn't it? We have come a long way. We all piled in the van together. We know occasionally you played some music you didn't like. (laughs) Some people got left behind at gas stations and rest stops, and some people jumped off the van while it was going 60 miles an hour. But it has been crazy, and and a lot of the reason why, there's been some things that have been hard to hear, right? I tainted the movie The Notebook for many of you during this series. Uh, I nearly locked you out of the theater. Remember that? And uh, I questioned if you left your heart at the trash dump. All right, so there were some hard words that that have been said. But overall, God showed us some new sights, and we've arrived at our destination. The road trip's almost to an end. We're here. We started this whole thing out little journey out by asking two questions. Oh, that was four. Two questions. What in the world does a prophet actually do? This guy Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament. What does a prophet do? What's his job? Well, his primary role or job is that of covenant enforcer, right? Either to encourage people towards the covenant or bring the baseball bat, and have them get towards the covenant, right? God calls his people back to the covenant, and through the prophets, he does this in very creative, fresh, new kinds of ways. We also ask the question, the second question, why Malachi? Why are we going through this book in particular? And one of the things that stuck out to me are these raw, just legitimate, but good disputes many ways, between God and man. And we see these kind of play out through questions that people have, God's people have, and answers that God gives in response to them. So if you struggle with God, if you have struggled with God over hard questions in your life, this book has been for you. As we've seen throughout, God is gracious and patient with us. He has hard things to say, but he can handle the hard questions. And wants us to ask them openly. That's one thing we learn from the book of Malachi, isn't it? He will deal with our questions. And he wants to respond. However, as we see this morning in his word, legitimate disputing, honest griping, only takes us so far without us actually doing something about our lives. Right? It's like the person who 
stalls, right, with questions. Just keep, if I just keep asking questions, maybe we won't do anything. And finally, God is saying, no, <laughs> there comes a point in time you got to get on with it. And what I'm calling you to do. And that's kind of the point that we're at in the book of Malachi right now. It's time to get on with it. Through Malachi, God makes one last plea with his people to remember his covenant. To remember his loving contract with them. Even here, it's like he's saying, look, I've been faithful. I've answered your questions. I've contended with these raw disputes. Now respond by trusting me. Look what it says in verse 4. Malachi chapter 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. That's sort of the bottom line of this passage. Now we get it right in the middle, surrounded by these two other parts, saying, look, the bottom line is this, trust me. Trust me, enter into this covenant with me. Because the way God's people trusted Yahweh is they demonstrated obedience to the covenant he set out. So, you show that you trust someone, you show that you trust God by obeying him. For us, the bottom line is similar. Trust God's son. God's son, whom he has provided as a solution for rebellion and sin in our lives, trust him. And the way we demonstrate that trust a life of grateful obedience. But see, so God gives us this sort of bottom line mission, but he doesn't just send us and kick us out the door to toil and obey sort of on our own by the sweat of our own brow. He gives us help. He gives us two motivators, two visions that we see here in this passage. All right, two visions. And they, they come on both sides of verse 4. Why does God give visions to motivate? And to explain this, I would like us to sort of go forward in time a little to a magical time of year, right? Or actually, backwards would be closer to Christmas, wouldn't it? Go backwards in time. Outside of the Bible, there are two classic sort of uh, Christmas adult stories. Adult stories that are wonderful, timeless, they've been made into films. They're great. And I'm not talking about Jingle All the Way. Starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sinbad. That is not the story I have in mind this morning. Nor am I talking about Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. uh, Which is, by the way, a real movie. Has anyone heard of this movie? No. If if you're one of these people who just enjoys a good chuckle, go home, YouTube, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. I'm telling you, you will not be disappointed. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, so, but the two, here's the stories I'm thinking of. The two stories, maintenance of film, classic stories. One is A Christmas Carol. All right, Charles Dickinson's classic, which features a miserly old man who must learn to become charitable, become giving in his life. The other, I think, is a movie called It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, you talk about classics. Now, a lot of you are like, what about Elf? I'm not, okay, I'm talking like black and white classics. I love Elf also. Which, My Wonderful Life features a charitable man who starts to question the value of his lifelong charity. 
What has made both of these last and endure and inspiring people isn't so much the transformation that occurs for both of these protagonists, but more so the visions that compel them, right? That compel them to transform, that motivate them to transform. So, for instance, you have Ebenezer Scrooge at a fork in the road in his life. And he's visited by three ghosts. So first you have the ghost of Christmas past. He shows a vision of how Ebenezer used to be a man of of joy and charity in his past. Then you get the ghost of Christmas present, who shows Ebenezer a vision of who suffers because of the life he leads now. And finally, of course, the ghost of Christmas future who shows him uh, what will become if he continues down this path of miserliness. You also remember George Bailey. It's a wonderful life, played by Jimmy Stewart, right? A kind and giving man. Things go south, and he wished he'd never been born. He feels like he's ruining everyone's life around him. He's about to jump off a bridge when an angel named Clarence, stops him and proceeds to show him a vision of his life had he not been born. Now these stories, they would be mediocre, at best mediocre, without vision. Can you imagine this? I mean, think about it. Imagine Scrooge without vision. Imagine if uh, Jacob Marley, you know, comes in to reason with Scrooge about the afterlife. He just sits down, let's, let's reason about this. Look, I could tell you, Ebenezer, you know, the great greed pays off. But it's really frowned upon in the afterlife. All right, so you may want to rethink things. I mean, look at the bandages around me, these chains. <laughs> Just be charitable. Now imagine if that was like the premise of the movie. That's terrible. Or what if George Bailey's, instead of, instead of this angel coming to, to show him vision of his life, What if George Bailey's business partner just come along and tries to talk him off the bridge? He says, look, George, you can't jump because, I mean, your life insurance policy, it's not that great. It might last two years for your family, but think about them. I mean, be honest. Plus, I'm going to be honest with you. I plan on dating Mary a couple years after you're dead. All right, I'm going after her, all right? So think about that. How terrible of a movie would that be? It'd be awful. No one wants to hear that. Not to mention this old man going after his wife. I mean, that's weird, right? Who thinks about those things? Apparently I do. But anyway, <laughs> I have a lot of time to myself. I was sick this week. All right, strep throat. It was, I had a lot, of, a lot of hallucinations. It was bad. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, these movies never would have been classics without vision. That picture of possibility, right? That's a supreme motivator for doing anything that's potentially transforming in life. That's what vision is, right? It's that, that possibility. At the, at the, it's the pot at the end of the rainbow, right? It's the after and the before and after pictures. It's the view from the mountaintop that you're going to get to see that you can imagine in your mind's eye. That's vision. Proverbs 29.18 says this. Where there is no vision, the people perish. I'm giving you the King Jimmy version here. Where there is no vision, people perish. Literally, it's discouraged. It brings about discouragement. Where leaders, 
where prophets don't show vision, people become discouraged. Here it says perish because King James Version was written around the time of Shakespeare and it's very dramatic. Perish. But the idea is people do begin to start wilting, become discouraged without vision. Here in this passage, God gives not one but two visions to encourage his people, to spur them on, to motivate them. And we know this because he uses like the introduction for vision. Twice. Behold. I didn't even do that. Anyway, I, that was just a reflex. Like moving your arms and you walk. Because anytime you say behold, you have to do that. Behold. Right? Palms out, elbow extended, rotate. Behold. That's, I imagine, what Malachi is doing here, communicating this vision. And he gives two of them, right? You see it first in verse 4, you see it again. Sorry, first in verse 1, then again in verse 4. So we're going to look at these two visions. First, the one starting in, in verse 5, a vision of help for the present life. These are in your notes on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along. Vision of help that God gives for the present life. Read with me verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This vision in many levels is weird because it's about a dead guy, Elijah. Elijah was this old prophet uh, who had long been dead by the time this was written. Uh, he had a difficult, lonely ministry to God's people and encouraging them back to the covenant. Uh, he also, his ministry was like out in the middle of nowhere. He was always in the kind of deserted regions. Some 450 years later, after this book, Malachi is written, a guy named John comes on the scene. He's the next prophet on the scene. His name's John. He would have a very similar experience. Difficult, lonely ministry, mostly ministering sort of in these uh, outlying regions. He was very much like Elijah. And that's why it says another Elijah will come. That's John the Baptist. His job was to prepare the way for Christ. To basically, you know, clear the road, sweep the path, so that people could more easily get to Jesus. How does he do this? He does how every other prophet does it. He calls people back to the covenant and its obligations. And we may ask, why would he do that? Because Jesus is coming. And if you know something about the New Testament, you know that Jesus is coming to bring this new covenant. This new contract. So why would this guy talk about the law and obligations and this sort of thing? Because this. The law, friends, is good and holy. Everything you read, back here, back here, still good and holy. A desire to obey it is good and holy. But if God used John to call people back to obey and love this law, they would start to realize something. In loving it, desiring to obey it, they'd realize they couldn't follow it. Ultimately, they would try, but they wouldn't be able to do it. Long term, they would fail. Enter Jesus. He begins to turn hearts. As it says here in verse 6. He turns hearts so that people not only are forgiven, but they are empowered to obey the law. By the way, an important aside in verse 6, if you read it, it talks about turning fathers' hearts to children and children's hearts to fathers. It might seem to indicate that God's going to make things cool between me and my dad. That's not really the idea going on here. 
God's people were in rebellion so long, their ancient forefathers would have rolled in their graves looking at their lives. That's kind of the idea. All right, so for example, look at this real quick. I just want to make sense of this verse. Isaiah 63, 16 kind of gives a similar idea. It says, but you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us, this, is, this comes much after the time of Abraham. He was like an ancient, old, forefather dude. Though Abraham does not know us, or Israel, who is Jacob, though Jacob does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. So the idea here is similar. Like, if they were looking down, which they were from heaven, they would say, those aren't my children. I don't know those people. That's kind of the idea. But by turning our hearts back towards obedience, they would look down pleasantly and please and say, oh, yes, my children. That's kind of the idea of turning children's hearts back to the fathers, fathers turning their children's hearts back to the kids. Does that make sense? So we can still love the law and in realizing we can't do it, realizing we can't fulfill it, reach out to our Savior for help. He turns our hearts so that we are enabled. And then we begin to want to follow the law. We begin to want to serve Him and please Him because of the great love with which He has loved us. That's who John the Baptist is trying to introduce. It starts with loving first the law. You've got to love it, only to realize you can't follow it. Which is why I want to address for parents for a moment here, if you don't mind. A few years back, Katie and I, we have, a, we have two kids we began to think more about why we taught our kids certain things. Why we imparted them certain things, especially certain rules and high standards for their life, okay? And we started to think, are we not just making them into little rule followers? In other words, little Pharisees? Like, if we're just telling them, do this, do this, this is not good, this is good, are we not just teaching them to behave for the sake of the law? As we began to consider this, we began speaking with others and reading and praying about it, but mostly through applying the gospel to our own lives and to our own hearts. We began to see that one of our goals as parents is to set up our children to fail. To set up our children to fail so that they might succeed. Let me explain. If you give your kids a high standard, parents. You give them a high standard, which you should. They will eventually, and you're consistent about it, they will see their need for Jesus. And they will reach out for a rescuer. Because by giving your kids a high standard, they realize, I cannot meet this standard. As they get older, they start to realize, man, as much as I try, I still can't do it. I want to encourage you to impart to your children a vision. And that's this. On the one hand, a high regard for high standards in the law. Okay, so on the one hand, a high regard for high standards in the law. But on the other hand, an even higher regard for a rescuer who can help us where we fail and turn our hearts to follow him. Does that make sense? Otherwise, children, like anyone else, will perish without a vision. Like if we just tell our kids, obey, just do this, do this, do this. No, obey your mom, it's good, the Bible says to do it. Look, here it is, woo! Right? If you do that, your kids will eventually wilt under that. If you only, if you only hand out a high standard, 
Kids will people please until eventually they grow frustrated. Kids never live up. But if you only, if you don't hand out any high standard, only hand out grace, you only hand out mercy to your kids. You know, you say kind words to them, you love, oh, I don't want to discipline you. I don't want to have high standards. I just want to, I just want to love you. All right, if you just do that, they'll never see their desperate need for a rescuer. They'll never see it. They'll never see that desperate need. They might have a Sunday school teacher who explains to them the idea of sin. And they may nod their head, even agree. Yes, I believe in it. But people, all of us, need to see our desperate need for Jesus. Our desperate need to be saved, to be rescued, where we cannot live up. So our kids do need that high standard. But equally, they need high grace. And as a parent, doing both is exhausting. There's no doubt about it. Doing both is exhausting. To hold out that high standard to your kids, right? To be involved in discipline and, and, and oh, I'm tired, but I've got to keep, I've got to be, you know, I've got to say this is wrong to do. I'm tired. But on the one hand, to get down their level, right? And continually hand out mercy to them. Continual forgiveness. That's one of the most exhausting things as a parent, isn't it? I would suggest that we be more empowered to doing it by starting with our own lives. A high standard. A law. But going to Jesus as a rescuer. High mercy. Jesus who gets down on our level and shows that to us. Like John the Baptist, hold out that high standard, but also show him the need for Jesus. So we have this vision of help for the present life that ultimately comes through Christ. We also have a vision of justice for the afterlife. Look with me in verses 1 through 3. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming and shall set them ablaze as the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act as the Lord of hosts. At first blush, it seems like there are two different visions here. Two different pictures, right? The unrighteous who get fire, the righteous who get healed. But really, it's part of the same vision, whose dominant metaphor is the sun, right? This dominant symbol. And it's the perfect symbol because a sun brings both healing and destruction. Let's talk about this for a moment. First, healing. As you see in verse 2, this idea that the sun of righteousness will rise, healing in its wings. The sun, as you know, has many benefits. Right? It makes things grow. Remember photosynthesis? You remember this idea? Sun, light, water. Things grow. For the Hebrews, it would have also been the thing that warmed the ground, that unthawed a wintry frost. So that ground could be tilled and seed could be sown. The sun unthawed the ground. It also healed. Still does, still heals. I read a number of studies this week, including one from the National Institute of Mental Health, that sunlight shortage lends greatly to clinical depression. 
But exposure to it, even in small increments, even in small increments, does wonders for us. And we know this, right? Yeah, you're stuck inside. all day. How many of you guys are stuck inside most of the day? Raise your hand. You're stuck inside most of the day. What's one of the most glorious ways? You come out in the sunlight. First, it hurts a little bit. But then you're like, oh, I got to do something outside. Like something. Even if it's just sit on my porch. Even if it's just rolling the window down. You know what I mean? You just love to see it. Or take a, take a break outside maybe your workplace or with your kids. So it grows, it unhardens, it heals. That's what sun does. The image of an afterlife for those who trust in Christ is that of a father who actually replaces the son. And Revelation talks about this. There is the son and then God the father replaces the son to give light to all of heaven. His warm rays, which are pictured here as wings. Kind of idea, there's a warm rays. They will bring total healing to every ailment. Every ailment that we have. Every wrong pattern of thinking, every hurt that has been caused will be healed. He'll thaw out any area of hardness and hearts that living in an untrusting world has left behind. I mean, think about it. To trust again. For some of us, that's huge. To fully trust. I mean, there will be no lack of trust in heaven. And finally, we'll continue to grow. You know that? will continue to grow in heaven. Heaven is not some static place where you just, you know, you're like this, praise God. But you actually, it's, it's like the garden. where you In the garden, it was a perfect kind of work. Adam and Eve, they took care of the garden. We're going to reverse that where, where we'll do work, but it will be this perfect, freeing, kind of growing and working, and it will be awesome. Amazing vision we're given. And just like the sun, by the way, I mean, I'm really stretching this metaphor this morning, just like the sun, it matters how you approach God. Just like it matters how you approach the sun. Living here, you know this, right? We know this. You don't expose yourself to the sun directly. If you're out all day, whether it's melanoma, sun poisoning, dehydration, there's a certain fear. Just like Scripture uses, there's a certain fear or respect we have of the sun and living here. God's people know you don't expose yourself to God directly. That's why they fear God. That's why it says, those who fear my name. You don't expose yourself to God directly. They understand that they're unworthy to be before God. And they will burn in the light of his holiness. And so, today we were able to take shelter in Christ. Who is our righteousness. Who provides the righteousness we need to be before God. But evildoers seek to please themselves. They're the center of their own universe. God is simply to them... A means of filling their base appetites. I'll, t- I'll, I'll pray to God. That means he'll give me things. The arrogant may believe God will accept them. Oh, God's good. He'll accept everyone. Even though they aim to reach God's status. You see that? Too close to the sun. You remember the story of Icarus? Anyone ever heard that story? Greek mythology. Anyone, anyone out there? Icarus? All right, a few of us. There you go. Ancient Greek myth. Icarus' dad, Daedalus. Alright, I'm going to tell you this real quick. He's this great Athenian craftsman. And he constructs a labyrinth for King Minos. Alright? And no, David Bowie. Not that labyrinth. Alright? I had to use that. Alright. But Daedalus is a real, a real labyrinth. Daedalus helps someone escape from this labyrinth. Helps him get out. 
So King Minos is greatly displeased. He then traps Daedalus, puts him under house arrest in the palace. He and his son, Icarus, are exiled. So he tries to think of a way to escape. What does he do? He's a master craftsman. Again, this is a myth. But he, uh, he fashions two pairs of wings made out of wax and feathers for himself and his son. And they're going to escape from the palace this way. Before they take flight, though, Daedalus turns to his son and says, Look, son, i got some advice for you. Don't fly too close to the sun. All right? It's going to be bad news for you if that happens. Well, a young man, Icarus, he's overcome by the thrill of flying. He thinks, he can, I can do anything! Right? King of the world! Kind of idea. And Icarus, he goes higher and higher and higher, gets too close to the sun, until the heat of the sun melts the wax. Feathers fall everywhere. And Icarus is left, helplessly flapping, like a cartoon character, plummeting to his death into the sea that bears his name, the Icarian Sea, which is in the Mediterranean. That's the idea, though, which is why the sun is a great metaphor. How you approach God matters. Some do approach God with absolutely no humility, absolutely see no need for him. Except needs to fill their own appetite. Verse 1 says this, The day is coming, burning like an oven, when the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The same sun, friends, will reduce to stubble those who approach God casually. It's the image of a burnt field we have here. Once proud, once productive, burnt to the ground. Neither root nor branch will be left behind, he goes on to say. Nothing's left behind. No next of kin who will honor you. No legacy. Nothing left behind. Finally, verse 4. Those who fear God will actually tread the wicked. The wicked will be ashes under the soles of their feet. Reversal of life on earth, isn't it? Those who stepped all over people to get what they wanted. Who trampled over people to be number one. There's a reversal. In heaven, they will be the trampled on. Now we read this. I, I was thinking of this this week. You, know, you read something like that, and, and my initial reaction is, oh, wait a minute. Now I understand those who, who worship the God of self, the God of their own appetite, do hurt people in this life. And they've hurt me. But I don't want this. I don't want stubble and burn and, and no... I mean... You know, trampling as ashes under the feet. Not that. I uh, heard from a lot of folks this week. Um, I don't know why, but I heard from a lot of folks on, on how to respond to the killing of Osama bin Laden. You might know the sleet, uh, the terrorist mastermind responsible for thousands and thousands of killings from New York to London to East Africa. was killed on Sunday. People reached out to me, and I, what I found was they were uncomfortable in some ways, like I was, you know, with images like this one, all right? People celebrating in the streets over the death of a man. On the one hand, don't get me wrong, I mean, it's good, but the, celebra the, the celebration over someone's death, someone who's made in God's image, albeit an image that's been corrupted by increasing wickedness and terror. 
But I, I just feel myself. Did you feel that this week? Like, I saw the image. I'm like, that's, I don't know. Even the most patriotic of Christians, and, and Brits and Americans especially, I heard from, and many, they felt uncomfortable, especially knowing, especially knowing he was suffering the kind of fate mentioned here in Malachi, fire. I gave this a lot of thought this week, and I suggest a response. Our response is something like this. It should be sober reflection on the one hand, sober reflection and tempered gratefulness. Sober reflection. Any death, especially the death of evil, should give us pause to reflect on our own hearts. You know that's what Jesus did? When a tower fell on people, actually I heard this sermon right after 9-11, my, my old senior pastor preached on it, the Tower of Siloam fell on people. People went to Jesus and asked him to respond to this tragedy. And Jesus said one line, he said, repent, lest you likewise perish. What was he saying? Look at your own heart. That could happen to you, too. Look at your own heart. Is it ripe for the Lord, or is there evil there, too? There's a guy, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Solzhenitsyn, had every right to rejoice in the death of someone like Osama bin Laden. This great writer, who died actually last year, spent eight years imprisoned in the brutal Russian gulag, which was the Soviet forced labor camps back around the time of Stalin. He wrote about it, won a Nobel Peace Prize, etc. He famously said this, though. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. When we see the death of evil, should remind us to look at our own hearts. Is there any in there? Do I need to reconcile something with the Lord? Sober reflection. But the other response, I think, is tempered gratefulness. Tempered gratefulness. Be grateful for the ridding of evil. Be grateful that there is a hell, which is good because God created it. I know we don't talk about hell being good, but God created hell. Do you know that? God who gives every chance to people here on earth to turn from their rebellion, to turn from wickedness, and be rescued by his son, which I know Osama bin Laden knew about. He commented extensively on Jesus. So he gives us every opportunity on this earth, but also makes sure the way we live here is accounted for in the afterlife. Not neglecting to punish evil from this life. And that's good, right? Because that is the justice that we all sense needs to be done. When we look at pictures and we see suffering, and it's right before our eyes, we sense justice needs to be done, and we're confident that God has a place for justice. It's their final resting place for all evil. It's hell. That's here in this passage. It's here. But we know God is good because of that too. Does that make sense? There's a resting place for all of evil. A final resting place. So we have here these two visions. One of a person who turns hearts. Another of a son that both heals and scorches. 
These are the visions God gives his people as supreme motivators. I want to conclude this morning with asking you two questions, friends. What vision is motivating your life? First question is, what vision is motivating your life? God gives us big visions here, right? A son that heals us. The ultimate vision for us as Christians, if you know Christ, if you don't know Christ, this is a vision you can adopt through trusting him, is to be transformed into the likeness of his son. The Apostle John says this, that when we see him, when we see him in heaven, we, we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And there's something about seeing him as he is. And all the purity and all the light, we will be, become like him. But in the meantime, as Christians, you have the ability to become more and more like him. Paul also says that we, with unfailed faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. Step by step, you become more like Christ here on earth. How are you going to get there? How are you going to get there? Don't just say to me, oh, well, God has to do it. He does. But he expects you to respond too. How are you going to get there? Each day when you drive into work, or when you care for a screaming child, how do you envision that day ending? How do you envision your day? ending. What's the light at the end of the tunnel? Is it sitting on a recliner, you know, beer in hand, watching the television? Is it the dream of a weekend where you can go dancing, diving, or just go away? Maybe it's the prospect of a good meal at the end of the day or the satisfaction of finishing everything on your to-do list. I'm not saying any of these smaller visions are bad in and of themselves. But do you find them constantly dominating the landscape of your life? That's, that's on the horizon. That's what I'm looking for. And if it is, God has a bigger vision for you. He has a bigger vision for you. Ultimately being like Jesus. Big vision. Being like Jesus, the risen Savior. But you know, each of us arrives there differently. Jesus was the perfect prophet, priest, and king. We are less perfect. Alright? So you may become more like King Jesus, helping to exercise rule and finding ways to get stuff done and helping people. You're a doer. You're a get-it-done kind of person. Behind the scenes, make it happen. Maybe... God's calling you to become more like prophet Jesus, speaking into people's daily lives, helping people discern between truth and error. Right? Blessing innocent bystanders with a kind word or speaking out against injustice. Or maybe for you personally, it's becoming more like priest Jesus on the front lines of ministry who loves dealing with people one-on-one, who listens compassionately, who addresses personal needs, the needs of our neighbor. We're not all called to be the same person, but we're all called to be like Jesus. That's the vision he's given us. What do you envision God doing in and through you by the end of today? Do you have a vision for that by the end of today? The end of this week? What about five years from now? Do you have a vision for your life? A God-implanted vision, especially 
one that will help you become more like Jesus. Second question is this. What vision are you passing on to others? We had this glorious vision here, right, this morning. But oftentimes, I think the vision we pass on to others, the life vision, is puny. It's small. And, I, and I'm counting myself in that. All right, we say things like, uh, you know, when someone's at a critical point in their life, everything will work out. Or whatever makes you happy. Right, these are the kind of life visions. Or, or what about this one with our kids? You know, uh, we have a great teaching moment with them. And we just say, now would Jesus be happy with those actions? Right, as if Jesus was this fickle scorekeeper or American Idol judge, right? We're like, nope, nope. All kinds of visions. How about this vision? God will make you feel better about yourself. Or God will bless you if you do good. These friends are all man-sized visions. Man-sized visions. People have heard these visions before. God gives a son that heals, a calf discovering what it's made for. What a, what a great picture for God's people, like a calf figuring out what it's made for and leaps out of the stall with all joy. He has a vision of a God who mysteriously turns hearts. These are big, God-sized visions. If someone says to you, friends, which they will, if you have relationships with people, they will say this at some point, especially if they don't know Christ, this is not what I imagined for my life. This is not what I envisioned or saw for myself. Friends, when that happens, they are looking for a new vision. This past week, I had a, just an awesome opportunity, totally because of the Lord, to speak with such a person. She was frustrated about being in a relationship, another relationship. She'd recently moved on from a different relationship, now found herself in another. She was disappointed that she hadn't stayed and couldn't stay by herself for long. She felt like, you know, I'm now in another relationship. Now, she was explaining this, and this is obviously kind of vulnerable, and there were a lot of man-sized visions I could have given her, especially the old, I'm sure the right guy will come along. Thankfully, I sensed the Lord encouraging me to go with a God-sized vision. So I got the nerve and said to her, you know, maybe it's because you weren't just created for any relationship. You were created for a relationship much bigger than the ones you're used to. The ones you find yourself seeking. In fact, maybe it's a bigger relationship that your heart is actually seeking. People are longing for God-sized visions for their lives. Let's give them one. And let's start by adopting one for ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this book of Malachi, Lord. Um, awesome, Lord. Just, it's challenged my heart tremendously in a lot of areas, or in a lot of areas of my life. I just pray this morning, Lord, that you would give us a God-sized vision for the end of each day, end of each week, for five years from now, Lord. One that may make us increasingly more like you, Jesus. One as your word says, that might transform us into the same image, this glorious image. Please give us one, Lord. And when we have opportunity, like Malachi was faithful to do here to his people, help us share a God-sized vision with others. 
Lord, I think so many people, like I am, Lord, I'm tired of puny man-sized visions that I think of, that I look forward to during the day. When you were saying, wouldn't it be awesome if you were called to work on the front lines with the Women's Crisis Center? Or with elementary age students and big brothers and big sisters. Just something big, Lord. Please do that in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.